by you. It'll help be helpful to you as we study God's Word together. You can turn to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, last week, we concluded a uh, short, well, I guess it's not short, but a relatively small series within a series on the book of Exodus as we walked one by one through the Ten Commandments. And we come to a much larger portion of Exodus this morning as we want to walk through verse 18 of chapter 20 all the way to the end of uh, chapter 23. But to get us started, let me just read verse 18 through 26 of Exodus 20, and then we'll begin. So hear now as God speaks to us uh, through His Word. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, and that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build of it huge stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask that you would help us this day to love your law, that we might have eyes, minds, and hearts by your Spirit opened to its truth. That we might keep it, that we might observe it that we might obey it. So convict us of the places in in which we have fallen short. Do build us up in the comfort that's found in Jesus Christ. As we listen, help us to do so with eagerness. Help us to do so with humility. Help me to preach as you command me to with boldness and clarity. And we do pray all of it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most influential men in the study of preaching is a 19th century Episcopalian pastor by the name of Phillips Brooks. In virtually every seminary preaching course today, you'll hear Brooks's now infamous, and for good reason, I think, definition of preaching that he wrote down in one of his books. He just said, preaching is nothing more than truth through personality. Uh, Many of you are actually familiar with a hymn that he wrote, having, I would imagine, many Decembers in your life, having sung the Philip Brooks tune of a little town of Bethlehem. And if you know the calm tones that belong to that tune, it may in some ways stump you to the greatness and the power of Phillips Brooks's preaching ministry. He not only was this imposing figure in terms of his physical stature, it was said that when Phillips Brooks spoke, he was one of those men that everyone suddenly knew they had to listen. Such was the power of his preaching ministry. So after one Sunday when he preached a particularly moving sermon, one of the congregants wrote this down. It was the most thrilling, dramatic thing I ever heard. 
He was intensely stirred, and the stillness of the people listening was painful. The excitement was so great that tears were needed to relieve the tension. And I would imagine for many of you, uh, you have a person in your life, or you've had a person in your life, that when they spoke, you had to listen. My kids, you have someone, at least in your life, that when they speak, you have to listen. That being your mom or your dad. Maybe it was a coach or a teacher. Maybe it was a boss. Maybe it was a friend. Maybe it was another extended family member. Perhaps even some sort of politician or leader. When that person speaks, everybody goes quiet and listens. And that, of course, is what's been happening at Mount Sinai for a number of weeks as we've studied Exodus chapter 20. God has spoken from the fire. God has spoken from the thunder. And it is, to a generation of Israelites, the most thrilling, dramatic scene that they would ever experience. And what we're going to see this morning is how they tried to relieve the tension of God speaking to them. And when you come to a large portion like we have today, uh, just over three chapters to examine, it's always good to remember why it is wise to often study God's Word at a variety of speeds. You know, if you want to be skilled in Scripture, and we all do as God's people, you'd need to study it at different paces in order that you might see certain things and not miss other things. So if you think of God's Word as something like a, a scriptural forest, you know that there are times in which you go into the forest and it's good to stop and, and stare at a tree. Just pay attention to its peculiar qualities and characteristics. Other times you might go in there and actually just stare at one branch, its strength and splendor. But you don't always do that because you want to make sure you remember that the branch and the tree belongs in a whole forest, a whole body of beauty. And so sometimes it's good to do that with God's Word. For the last few weeks, we've stopped and stared one by one at these Ten Commandments, sometimes only noticing two words in the original Hebrew text. And now we're going to zoom out in many ways and take in a whole lot more today with our theme of the Book of the Covenant. Because what we're going to look at, uh, really it is from the end of chapter 20, so verse 22 of chapter 20, all the way through the end of chapter 23, is what Exodus 24 verse 7 calls the Book of the Covenant. As so we'll walk through it under two simple parts. In verse 18 through 21 of chapter 20, I want you to see reverence for the covenant. And then the rest of the book of the covenant, obedience to the covenant. So reverence for the covenant and obedience to the covenant. Reverence, notice, begins again, verse 18. When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. Now that phrase, so they stood far off, if you just glance down to verse 21, it shows up again at the beginning of that verse. It's important, clearly, that we know the people have now retreated from Mount Sinai. Because it's been a number of months since we were in chapter 19, you've got to remember what the people were like at the beginning of God speaking there at Sinai. He had brought them all the way to this mountain that he said they would get to after their deliverance from bondage and slavery in Egypt. And he said, I'm getting ready to come and descend on the mountain to meet with you. And you've got to get ready for it. You've got to consecrate yourselves. No one can come near the mountain. No one can touch it, lest they break out and kill them. So they put a fence around the mountain. And then on the third day, when the Lord descended in all His power, all His glory upon the mountain, the people drew near. They were basically next to that fence as God was appearing in fire and thunder. That's why one commentator has called it something like a spiritual inferno there at Mount Sinai. You know, kids, if you were there and God was speaking... The power of his voice would have been like an electric shock to you. 
so full and even perhaps terrifying is the shock of God's electric voice. You see now the people are in retreat. They're running away from the mountain. Now they're not standing close. They're standing far off. And they're, of course, afraid. They're trembling at this fire and all this smoke. And that is a very good response to God's word. I wonder when was the last time you trembled. Perhaps genuinely felt overwhelmed in fear because God spoke to you. That's actually a much more common occurrence in God's word than you might realize. Consider a few famous examples like the great prophet Isaiah. He has this vision, doesn't he? He's taken up to the throne room of heaven. And he sees the thrice holy God. And what does he do but cry out, woe is me. Or the great apostle Peter when he meets Jesus Christ and sees his beauty and his splendor and his glory. He falls on his face and says, depart from me for I am a sinful person. Fear. Reverence is a good thing. It's a terrifying thing. So notice what they tell Moses in verse 19. You speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses, we need you to be the mediator between God and us. And if you read this story in isolation, you, you, you might think perhaps initially that their request was wrong. Wouldn't you rather want to hear God's voice directly? Rather than mediated through another person. But God himself actually says their request is good. Their request is right. Because later on in God's word in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Moses is recounting this whole story of Sinai to the people of Israel. And he says about the text where we are right here in chapter 20. God says to Moses, I've heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always. To fear me. Reverence for the covenant is right and good. And it's a reverence for the covenant that now leads way to obedience to the covenant. As Moses, verse 21 of Exodus 20 says, he's going back up the mountain. Uh, we're going to notice in the coming chapters, Moses is kind of this doing yo-yo thing. Up and down, up and down, up and down. So off he goes, kids. You can picture the scene. Moses going up a mountain that's not very tall, but tall enough to climb the mountain. And there at the top, nothing other than pitch black. Into the darkness goes Moses. Now there's a man that's called one of the greatest living explorers alive today. He's known as the Canadian Indiana Jones. His name is Adam Schultz. And it was five years ago that he published a book on one of his explorations of a portion of Canada that had yet to be explored by any person to date. And he uh, subtitled that book, Expedition into the Unknown. And you wonder, as Moses is going up the mountain, if the nation of Israel was likewise thinking, I wonder what he's going to hear up there. It's an expedition, isn't it, into the unknown? But we know exactly what he heard. Because notice verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You've seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. And you shall not make for yourself gods of gold. Now kids, does that sound like something from the Ten Commandments? It seems like he's already, right from the start, the Lord is reiterating the importance of the first and second commandments. Of what it means to worship the Lord. And this is, of course, obvious, isn't it? When you, when you truly consider it. Because obedience to God always begins with worshiping God. 
You can't live rightly before the Lord if you're not worshiping Him rightly. He knows that His people must live a life of worship, but they're actually going to obey His covenant. So He begins right away in the book of the covenant thinking about what right worship looks like. I wonder if you've been at your, a place in your life recently where you, you felt godliness was somewhat stunted in your own life. Holiness wasn't, isn't growing as much as you know it should. And maybe in honesty and humility as you're examining your heart there, you realize it's perhaps I've given a small priority in my life to worshiping God as He has commanded us. They've got to get worship right before they get their life right before God. So you see verse 24 through 26 in chapter 20, He just gives them laws about altars. If they're going to build an altar to worship Him, this meeting place in the ancient world with God, they've got to do it rightly. Because they can build an altar, they can create steps which mirror the pagan practices of altars. You can't do that. So if you're going to obey God, you've got to worship Him. And then notice verse 1 of chapter 21. God continues by saying, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. I think I was 16 years old, somewhere around there, when I got my first read through the Bible in a year Bible reading plan. And I started off as, maybe you know what this feels like, great urgency and expectancy. Well, days were going well, uh, weeks were going well, and then you came to Exodus chapter 21. And you thought, what do all of these laws have to do with me? And you turn the page and realize Exodus 22 has a lot of laws too. And then Exodus 23 has a lot of laws too. And suddenly I kind of petered out and moved to the New Testament thinking I'd come back to the Old Testament <laughs> later on in the year. And it's a question of, of great concern, isn't it? If you've read through the Old Testament, you know you're going to run into all these passages with case law after case law after case law that belong to the nation of Israel. And you often should be asking yourself, well, what do I do with all of these laws? So let's answer that question before we notice a few things about these laws. Well, what's the Christian's relationship to the Mosaic law? And if you want to know what our church's stance is on that question, you, you probably are savvy enough to realize why we read the affirmation of faith that we did read this morning from the Confession of Faith, chapter 19, verse 4, which says that God gave to Israel as a civil entity judicial laws which expired at the time their state expired. And therefore, these judicial laws place no obligation on anyone now except as they take and embody general principles of justice. In other words, don't ever forget that the nation of Israel belonged to a peculiar time and space in redemptive history. God's people weren't just a religious nation. They were, of course, a political nation. Therefore, God didn't give them just religious laws, but judicial and civil laws as well. And therefore now, in the new covenant age, of course, God's people doesn't belong to one nation, but to all nations. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation claim the name of Jesus Christ and call on Him as Lord. No longer are judicial laws belonging to Israel belonging to us, but the point that the confession is making clear to us is it's still useful. There's some general things that we need to see about this law. Before I give you three general things, just go with a quick survey and scan of the book of the covenant with me. If you have your Bibles open. Chapter 21, you see it begins verses 1 through 11. These are laws regarding slaves. And then verse 12 through 17, it gives laws about taking another's life. Then verse 18 through 36, it gives us laws about injuring people and animals. 
So equitable treatment of others is really what it's saying. Verse 1 through 6 of chapter 22, uh, that deals with things like protection of property, how you care for others and their belongings. Then you see verse 7 through 15, it gets to matters of finance and business, how to use your money, how to use your employment for the Lord. Verse 16 and 17 of chapter 22, those are sexual ethics that God is concerned with. Then verse 18 through 20 of chapter 22 gives capital offenses for uh, wrong worship, such as the serious nature of worshiping God. Then you get laws about social justice. End of chapter 22, laws about God's authority in the state, God's authority among the people, and God's authority in your life individually. Chapter 23 opens with nine verses on laws about integrity in dealing with others. It moves into laws, verse 10 through 13, about work. And then verse 14 through 19, it deals with laws about Sabbath and festivals. So, so worship, once again. And so if you were to go home today and, and just read through all of those laws, it wouldn't take you very long at all. And you read through those laws thinking, what, what are the general principles those laws can teach me? I wonder what you might put down. Well, there's three things I put down. Number one, the book of the covenant teaches us that God rules with justice. God rules with justice. Because what you'll find is, is what verse 1 of chapter 21 says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. That word rules can also be translated as judgments. So here's the law, and here's what happens if you break the law. And so sometimes that consequence is going to be capital punishment. Sometimes it's restitution. Other times it's a different form of repayment. So here's what it might sound like if you go back to chapter 21, verse 16. One of the capital punishment laws. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So man-stealing is worthy of punishment unto death if you... Uh, glance forward to just verse 14 and 15 of chapter 22. You see how particular God's judgments are in these law codes. He says in verse 14 of chapter 22, If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, or it is injured, and it is injured or dies. So kids, uh, these days, if you need work in your yard, you might say, Hey, can I borrow your lawnmower? Can I borrow your weed eater back then? Can I borrow your ox or your donkey? And so if you borrow the ox or the donkey and it died in your care, here's what God says is supposed to happen. If the owner was with you, you shall not owe anything. If the owner wasn't with you, you shall make full restitution. The end of verse 15 says, well, if you hired it for a fee, well, that fee covers the death of, of that animal. So very particular. God rules with justice. He, he's a just and righteous God. Breaking his law means a consequence is going to come. Number two, general principle from the book of the covenant. God reigns over everything. Not just God reigns with justice, God rules over everything. It's hard to know the exact count, but there are probably 42 different laws that God gives in this book of the covenant. And those laws touch every part of an Israelite's life. That God cared deeply, not just about their personal piety, but God cared deeply about their public morality. And the reason why you can see how expansive God's rule is is if you just kind of read through these again later on this afternoon, wouldn't take you very long, uh, see where you can find God beginning to describe and expand upon various commandments. So you can write these down and maybe see them later on today. Chapter 21, verse 12 through 32. It applies the sixth commandment to all kinds of situations. You shall not murder. And then you get chapter 
21, verse 33, through chapter 22, verse 15. It's dealing with all this property stuff. Well, that's a little more than just a, a long application of the Eighth Commandment. You shall not steal. And then you get later on in chapter 23, verse 10 through 12 in particular, gives a very specific application of the Fourth Commandment. What it means to keep the Sabbath day holy. God rules with justice. God cares. Therefore, He rules over everything. Now, thirdly, God requires holiness from His people. God requires holiness from His people. Uh, John Owen is often called the Prince of the Puritans for good reason. He seemed to have this theological mind and intellectual ability that just no one else in his time matched in the 17th century. Uh, but what not everyone knows about John Owen is he was very clear in his pastoral ministry, in his writing ministry, in his teaching ministry, what his purpose was. He said, the aim of my life is to promote, quote, universal holiness in my heart and the hearts of others. Uh, he knows the desire of God is for his people everywhere to be holy. Kids, that means just to be set apart, to be different. That as Israel was going to keep this covenant book, they were going to look different than the watching world. Which is why you can see chapter 22, verse 31, a summary statement, if you will. He simply says, you shall be consecrated to me. Not consecrated to the world, not consecrated even to your family. You should be consecrated to me. And I wonder if you were to examine your own heart and life, if, if you feel as though you are set apart from the watching world. Because God has called you in Jesus Christ to be set apart as a holy nation from the watching world. Different in how you think, how you speak, how you live, how you serve. Or do you tend to be a kind of person that tends to blend in more than lived distinctly? So these are three general principles that you need to take from the book of the covenant. God reigns with justice, He rules over all, and He requires holiness from His people. Not long ago, I had a friend of mine that was telling me about these random laws that were enacted in America decades, even centuries ago, that are still in force today because, you know, they're on the books and people just forgot they were there. And we went and ran these down, and, and some of these are actually quite true. Things that seem altogether out of place, but nevertheless are true in America today. For example, in Oklahoma, it is still illegal to have a sleeping donkey in your bathtub. But only after 7 p.m. In Nebraska, a tavern owner, so we'll take that as a hotel owner, can't serve beer unless a nice kettle of soup is also brewing on the stove. In Baltimore, Maryland, children, you're not allowed to take a lion to the movies. In our great state of Texas, you may not shoot a buffalo from outside the second story window of a hotel. But you read that one and you wonder, what about the first story? What about the, the third story? Now, if you read these things, of course, you understand, that seems out of place. Totally out of context. In ways you maybe have not understood if you've read through the book of the covenant before, I do think that some of the Israelites, after hearing this in chapter 24, would have been, that seems out of place. That seems out of context. Why? We don't have homes. We don't have property. We don't have all these possessions. Why is he telling that to us now? You can even look in chapter 22. There's a relatively famous section, verse 12 through 14. 
speaks about something that would be increasingly vital to the nation of Israel's religious life and public life. It refers to these cities of refuge. And, and you think about these cities of refuge and Israelites saying, but we're just nomads in the wilderness. What's all this talk about? Cities. Well, that gets us to the end of the book of the covenant. If you fast forward to chapter 23, verse 20 through the end, what you'll see what God does in this final section is he gives a series. And you could circle them off, kids, if you wanted to look. There are a number of times God says, I will, I will, I will. A series of promises to his people. And isn't it true that God is always that way with us? In his grace and mercy, he gives us promises about the future to motivate our obedience in the present. Uh, three simple promises he gives to his people. Number one, he promises a guide. Look at verse 20 and 21. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. And maybe you want to know, and you should want to know, who the identity of this angel is. Uh, many people throughout the recent years have said, well, it's just Moses. It's this kind of fancy religious way of talking about Moses, who's the mediator with God. You know, he was the one that was interceding between Israel and Yahweh. He was the one who was uh, exacting God's justice there in the land. But uh, the better way to think about it is Moses, of course, can't be this person. God's name is not on him in the same way. Moses doesn't have the power to bring transgressions forgiven. He doesn't have the power to judge them in the same way as this divine angel, especially as you notice verse 23 picks up the angel's power going into battle. And so it's why Christians throughout the ages have understood this angel, this messenger, uh, to be nothing other than uh, somehow this mysterious yet majestic pre-incarnate manifestation of God's eternal Son who would become known as Jesus Christ because we know already in the book of Exodus that God's presence, His personal presence was going with the nation of Israel and cloud and, and a fire. So He promises a guide. Number two, He promises a home. Look at verse 25 and 26. You shall serve the Lord your God and He will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from you None shall miscarry or be barren in the land, and I will fulfill the number of your days. Hey, this home that I'm taking you to, there, there's no sickness, there's no sorrow, there are no troubles, there are no tears here. That's why we rightly think of the Old Testament promised land as nothing more than a type of the eternal promised land that's ours in Jesus Christ, when likewise, for all eternity, days won't need to be numbered. For all eternity, no sickness, sorrow, no tears, troubles. He promises a guide. He promises a home. Number three, he promises the victory. Because if you just scan your eyes to verse 23 through 33, you'll see God is making it clear to the Israelites, I'm going to take you to the promised land, and you will see, you will know and experience victory over your enemies. But just look at verse 27. He says, I will send my terror before you. And will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies to turn their backs to you. So God's personal presence among his people is no doubt a comfort to his people who trust in him. But God's personal presence among his people has nothing more than a terror to those who stand against him. And I wonder if his presence among his church is something that comforts you. Or something that terrifies you. Of course, it's good news in Jesus Christ that he has fought the battle. He's already won the victory through his shed blood at the cross of Calvary. 
God promises a guide, a home, and victory to His people that they might know obedience to the covenant. There was a number of weeks ago when Emily was working at the hospital during the day and, and one of our children had to take a math exam. And said math exam did not go well. And the child was rather upset at not doing well. It was a passing grade, but certainly it was not as well as he wanted to do. And so we had a useful conversation about the value of tests. You know, it's not meant to show you how perfect you are. It's meant just to expose what you know. It's meant to, as I told him, to show you what's there. And I tell you that because as we begin to close, I want you to know two final things about the book of the covenant. The first of which is the book of the covenant brings us a test. Brings us a test. If you look back to chapter 20, isn't that what Moses says in verse 20 of chapter 20? Do not fear, for God has come to test you. And if you think about the apostolic writings in the New Testament that reflect back on Moses and the law that he heard and then he relayed to the nation of Israel. It often talks about it in these kind of categories. That the law was given, Galatians chapter 3 says, to imprison everything under sin. To take us by the hand as a guardian and bring us to Jesus Christ. In other words, to show us our sin. Romans chapter 3 finds Paul also telling the church there at Rome that without the law there is no transgression. Because it's the law that shows us what it means to disobey God. And it's through the law that wrath comes and the law is given that all the world might be accountable to God. Did you know that God has given you His law through His Son and His Spirit and you have failed the test? Because James tells us that if you've broken the law in one place, you've broken it in every place. He gives the nation of Israel a law that they might know they need a Savior. So it brings us a test, number one. Number two, the book of the covenant calls us to trust. Some of you might remember times of having, for one reason or another, in your academic studies, gone into a testing center to take a test. Maybe it's one that you happened to miss that day or it was a standardized test in one way, shape, or form. And I do remember going into such places before and there always was this stillness. There was this quiet in those rooms. And I always entered with this sense of trepidation, nervousness. Maybe perhaps depending on the test, some degree of intimidation. I've taken a few of those. And I want you to know that God's Word tells us there, there is a day coming when every single one of you will be summoned to God's testing center. That's what the New Testament tells us the final judgment is. Test out what you said. Test out what you've done. And show what's truly there. And of course, none of us will stand before the Lord at the day of judgment with anything other than trepidation and intimidation because we have failed His test. And so like Israel, we will want to be there, or we might be there and we'll be altogether afraid, altogether trembling, altogether full of terror. But you don't have to be. The mercy and good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that a messenger has come. And you'll there one day get to the final judgment. God is going to test you. And before you say a word, the son will stand next to you and say, I've taken that test for this one. The test has already been passed.
So you've fallen short. You've failed. The law has exposed your sin. And that is a most terrifying reality. For if you remain apart from Jesus Christ, his terror will war against you for all eternity. But of course, if you come to Jesus Christ, who is not just the lawgiver, but the law keeper, he will stand in your place and therefore give you the exact same promises because he has forgiven your sin through the shedding of his blood. He gives you likewise a guide, his Holy Spirit. Has he not also promised you a home for all eternity in heaven? Has he not also said, I've already won the victory? So the book of the covenant brings a test. Israel failed it, you failed it. Therefore, the book of the covenant calls us to trust in God's messenger, his angel, his son, Jesus Christ, that we might genuinely have that reverence for his covenant, that we might have obedience to his covenant, remembering always that Christ himself, he is the covenant. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that your law would do its convicting work amongst us. That it would show us our sin, that it would show us our misery. And that Jesus Christ would be our saving grace and eternal comfort. Father, we want to grow in reverence. We want to grow in obedience. We know we cannot do that without the blessed help of your Holy Spirit. So fill us this day with your spirit, that we might walk in newness of life, that we might grow in an appropriate fear of you and love for your law. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.